Well, to my grandparents and to their generation, the predictions seemed like promises. Experts back then predicted in the future working hours would be short and vacations would be long. Working hours would be short and vacations would be long. Economist John Maynard Keenis said in 1930, our grandchildren would work around three hours a day and probably only by choice. Economic progress and technological advances had already shrunk working hours considerably in his day, and there was no reason to believe that this trend would not continue. Fast cars and uh, ever more time-saving tools and appliances guaranteed more speed and less drudgery in all parts of life. Back then, social psychologists began to get together and talk about it. They began to be worried. They asked themselves, what in the world will those people do with all their free time? Hmm. Anyone here find the biggest problem you're dealing with these days is what you're going to do with all your free time? Normal today isn't figuring that out. It isn't figuring out what to do with your extra time. Uh, it's figuring out how to squeeze all of the work and all of the chores and all of the recreational activities that we need to do into our time. Normal is feeding your kids happy meals in the car on the way to their lessons or practices. Normal is assembling your online grocery list while sitting in the stands while your kids are playing their ball game. Normal is answering an email while pretending to be listening in that business meeting. Normal is laying in bed at night talking to your spouse about who will handle what errands the next day. Normal is falling asleep, remembering that you needed to call and schedule maintenance on the furnace and that you forgot to answer that text from your best friend and that you didn't book the space for your children's birthday party again. Normal is stressed and overwhelmed and busy. Normal is exhausted and burned out and hurried. But normal isn't working. Normal is broken, and that's why we have been talking about being weird. We've been looking at the teaching of Jesus and seeing that he wants us to get off the normal path. The normal path is wide, and it's crowded, and it is the path that leads to death and destruction, according to Jesus. But Jesus wants us to get on the path that is narrower and lonelier, but it is the path that will lead to life. Jesus makes it clear that his path isn't the path of being stressed and busy and overwhelmed. Look at what he says in John chapter 14. He says this, I leave you peace. It is my own peace I give you. I give you peace in a different way than the world does. So don't be troubled. Don't be afraid. So today, we want to figure out how to be weird in this area, too. How to move out of the normal, stressed, and busy, and frantic life into a life of peace. And I want you to know, I'm not there yet. This is an area where I am still struggling to figure it out. This week, in fact, has been a hugely stressful week for me. And 
I may be the least qualified to teach you this today, and I might be the person that needs it the most. So let's try together to discover God's best for us in this area. John Ortberg is a pastor and a writer that I've gained some insight from over the years, and he was mentored by the great Dallas Willard. Dallas Willard was a professor of philosophy at the University of Southern California in Los Angeles for many years, and he was a Christian who wrote extensively on spiritual formation. And John tells about the time in the late 90s when he was a busy pastor working on the staff of one of the largest churches in America. And he was also traveling as a sought-after author and speaker. And at the same time, he says that he was in the Van Driving Soccer League piano lesson school orientation night years of parenting. He says he was feeling overwhelmed and he was feeling stressed and so he called Dallas Willard. He described his schedule. He described how he was feeling and he asked him, what do I need to do to be spiritually healthy? What do I need to do to be spiritually healthy? Ortberg said there was a long pause on the other end of the line, which there often was when he asked Willard a question because he had to think about the answer. Willard said after the long pause, you must ruthlessly eliminate hurry from your life. Then there was another long pause. Ortberg finally broke the silence and he said a little impatiently, okay, I've written that one down. It's a good one. Now, what else is there? And there was another long pause. And then uh, Willard said, there is nothing else. You must ruthlessly eliminate hurry from your life, for hurry is the great enemy of spiritual life in our world today. Hmm. You must ruthlessly eliminate hurry from your life, for hurry is the great enemy of spiritual life in our world today. Now, when I read that, something clicked inside of me. I know it's true. I know it's true, yet honestly, I struggle to fix it. I will just confess, I'm not sure that I know how to do life without being busy and stressed and without hurrying from place to place. I'm not sure I know how to do that. But like you, I need to figure it out because I agree with what Ortberg writes in his book, The Life You've Always Wanted, Spiritual Disciplines for Ordinary People. Here's what he says. Hurry is the great enemy of spiritual life in our day. Hurry can destroy our souls. Hurry can keep us from living well. Again and again, as we pursue spiritual life, we must do battle with hurry. For many of us, the great danger is not that we renounce our faith. It is that we will become so distracted and rushed and preoccupied that we will settle for a mediocre version of it. We will just skim our lives instead of actually living them. Wow. We aren't in danger of renouncing our faith. The danger is we will be so busy, so rushed, so distracted that we will settle for half or a mediocre version of what God wants for us. We'll skim our lives instead of living them. 
It reminds me of a haunting observation that the author of the Burnout Society makes at the very end of his book. He says, they are too alive to die and too dead to live. They are too alive to die and too dead to live. Now, I don't want that to describe me, but I think it has at times. And I don't want that to describe you either. So let's figure out how to push past the normal of being stressed and busy and learn to be weird in this area. And as we have said in this series, if you want what normal people have, then do what normal people do. But if you want what few people have, do what few people do. So let's look at ways to do what few people do in this area of busyness and stressful living. Look at what Paul said about time in Ephesians chapter 5. He said, so be very careful how you live. Do not live like those who are not wise, but live wisely. Use every chance you have for doing good because these are evil times. Now, I used to think that this was a warning to us to be careful about not falling into sin, that it was a focus on these being evil times, and and of course that's true too, but more and more I think this is an encouragement to really focus on how we use our time. Living wisely is using our time for things that are wise. It's using our time to ruthlessly eliminate hurry from our lives. For Christmas, my daughter gave me this book by John Mark Comer. It's called The Ruthless Elimination of Hurry. It's based, uh, gets its title from the quote we just read. And uh, this message was already scheduled when she gave me this book, but the book has been a huge help as I've prepared this message. And honestly, (laughs) I need to spend more time with the book while I'm not stressed about preparing a message on stress. I need to read it a little more carefully after that. But in the book, he spends about 125 pages detailing four practices for unhurrying your life. Four practices for unhurrying your life. And I'm going to use the four that he mentions here and talk about them. Most of what I'm saying about them is from my experience and my understanding. So if you want uh, more thoughts on any of them, you might want to pick up his book and read it. But the first practice for unhurrying your life is silence and solitude. Silence and solitude. Our world is so loud sometimes and uh, a time of silence and being alone can be really important. And the life of Jesus showed that it was really important to him. Just after Jesus began his ministry, just after he uh, announced and acknowledged that he was from God and he was doing this ministry, he had some very busy days. He spent some time uh, healing people and teaching people And then we read this about him. Very early in the morning, while it was still dark, Jesus got up, left the house, and went off to a solitary place where he prayed. Now, if you do a study on his life, you will find that when he had intense times of ministry, when he had been with lots of people and had lots of interaction with people, Quite often he did pull away to spend some time in solitude, to spend some time in prayer. Look at another scripture from Luke chapter 5. 
But the news about Jesus spread even more. And many people came to hear Jesus and to be healed of their sicknesses. But Jesus often slipped away to be alone so he could pray. Now, for extroverts like me who gain energy by being with people, going to a solitary place to be alone seems difficult. It seems kind of strange. A few years ago, I went to a retreat center in South Carolina. Uh, They had this beautiful space for pastors, uh, and it was free, so I could afford it. And uh, so I scheduled it for uh, part of my yearly planning retreat where I plan messages for the coming year. And when I talked to the lady there, I, you know, I asked her if they had Wi-Fi because I kind of needed that for my planning purposes. And she seemed a little bothered uh, that I had asked that question. And uh, I told her a little bit about what I would be doing there. And she said, that's fine. But she suggested that I take a day or two and just allow God to minister to me. She said, solitude is a spiritual practice that many, especially pastors, overlook. I was gracious, but I wasn't convinced. I knew what I needed to do. I had my plan, but I was gracious to her. However, when I got there as part of my welcome packet, there was this sheet on solitude. And I read through it, and it kind of sounded like something that might benefit me, something that I needed But it said some strange things. It said to find a quiet spot and to just sit. To do your best to not think of anything that you have to do. To not look at your phone. To not even open your Bible and read your Bible unless you felt like God was leading you to read something. Then it said... Don't be, a, uh, be surprised if you fall asleep during this time. God knows when you need rest, and when you sit quiet with, quietly with him, he may give you rest. Well, I decided she had told me I should try it, and this sheet says I should try it, so I decided that I would try this solitude thing, and it wasn't easy. I fidgeted quite a bit. I kept thinking of things I could be doing on my planning side of my retreat, and I kept thinking that I needed to check my email, but I kept saying to God, if this is something that I need to do, help me do it. Help me do it. I kept focusing on hearing God, on experiencing God, and then I felt this peace come over me. And... I felt God show up and just kind of be there with me in a way that I hadn't felt for a while. And then I fell asleep for four hours. (laughs) Now, you might not know this about me. I rarely sleep four hours at night, but I never sleep four hours during the day. And I slept for four hours. Now, 
I didn't spend the entire retreat doing that because I really did have work to do. And in fact, uh, after a couple of days there in this really lonely spot, I got really stir crazy and I, I had to go find some people to talk to. You know, I was the guy in the restaurant. Hi, how you doing? You know, looking for someone who would talk to me. But it was interesting to see how God ministered to me in that time of solitude. Now, if you're an introvert, you honestly probably don't need to schedule this time in. You probably don't. I mean, you probably find time to be alone because you're more comfortable being alone. And solitude for an introvert may even be a selfish thing rather than a spiritual thing. They are used to enjoying their alone time and letting Jesus into their alone time might feel like Jesus is kind of invading their space and you also need time of silence and solitude that's designed to let God speak into your life. So practically, how do you do this? I mean, you don't have to go to a retreat center for a week to accomplish this. You can take some time in the world that you live in every day. I'm still not great at it, but uh, I work to have some time of silence and solitude on a consistent basis in my life. Here are some ways that work for me. When I am alone in the car, I just turn off all the noise. I, I don't listen to the radio. I don't talk on the phone. I just use that time to be completely quiet and invite God to speak to me. You might schedule a morning or an afternoon or maybe a full day each month to sit quietly with no noise and no agenda. Maybe have a Bible and a notepad in case God leads you to open them. But just pray, God, I'm here and I'm listening Go ahead and speak to me. And maybe just add 15 minutes to your quiet time with God when you just sit quietly trying to experience whatever it is that he wants to impress upon you. Practicing silence and solitude will help you to unhurry your life. Another biblical way to do that is getting serious about Sabbath rest getting serious about Sabbath rest. The Sabbath in the Bible was on Saturday, and it was commanded to be a day of rest. Look at what it says in Exodus chapter 20. Remember to keep the Sabbath holy. Work and get everything done during six days each week, but the seventh day is the day of rest to honor the Lord your God. On that day, no one may do any work, not you, your son or daughter, your male or female slaves, your animals, or the foreigners living in your cities. The reason is that in six days, the Lord made everything, the sky, the earth, the sea, and everything in them. On the seventh day, he rested. So the Lord blessed the Sabbath day and made it holy. So this was kind of like a day off, but not a day off like we take days off. Not a day off like I take days off any, anyway. Most of us work quite a bit on our day off. Friday was my day off, and uh, it was not a day of rest. Jill and I needed to take down our Christmas tree and our decorations, and we were dealing with a problem with a business deal that we're involved in, and we had some other chores around the house to do. And in all, we worked six or seven hours on our day off. Now, the word Sabbath in Hebrew literally means to stop. To stop. 
Comer in his book says the Sabbath is simply a day to stop, stop working, stop wanting, stop worrying, just stop. He goes on to say, think of the images that come to us through lifestyle advertising in our social media feeds and or that trendy magazine on the coffee table, the couple lounging in the king-size bed over breakfast and coffee, organic linens spilling onto the floor, the photo-perfect picnic at the beach uh, with wine and cheese and that trendy bathing suit, a 20-something playing guitar on the couch while watching the rainfall. Whether they are selling a new bathrobe, a down comforter, or a piece of furniture, almost all of them are images of Sabbath or stopping. He says they know that we want to slow down, that we want to stop, that all of us want that, and reminds us that for that to happen, we don't need to buy their product. We just need to stop, to take a day each week for Sabbath rest. How long has it been since you have taken a day like that or even an hour like that? Jesus was criticized for how his followers spent their Sabbath day. They did some things that um, some of the religious people thought were against the rules. Look at what Jesus said in Mark chapter 2. Then Jesus said to them, the Sabbath was made to meet the needs of people, not people to meet the requirements of the Sabbath. Here's the thing. When Jesus said this, he said that to people who needed to hear the second part of what he said. They were legalistic about the rules of the Sabbath. And so Jesus said, people weren't created to keep the rules. People weren't created to keep the Sabbath rules. Today, most of us need to hear the first part of what he said. God created the Sabbath to meet the needs of people. We who rarely practice Sabbath, who rarely stop our motion need to hear that Sabbath rest is something God designed for us. It really is okay to not accomplish anything on one day each week. To just rest, to relax, to stop. God designed us to do that one day every week. Another practice that we can take to unhurry our lives is simplicity. Simplicity. Now, we may talk um, about this later in the series, so I'll try to be brief here, but Comer in his book talks about the rise of a lie. He talks about how our nation began as this experiment around the principle of the pursuit of happiness, that all of us deserve the pursuit of happiness, but then he points out that it has only been recently that we have redefined happiness as making a lot of money and having a lot of things. Only recently have we redefined happiness as owning lots of stuff and making lots of money, and we have come to believe we actually need our stuff. We need our stuff. Owning a home is a need. Having two cars is a necessity and computers and phones and iPads and so much more have all become not just niceties but necessities. Mark Twain said this many, many years ago, civilization is the limitless multiplication of unnecessary necessities. 
It's the limitless multiplication of unnecessary necessities. And our money and the things that we own complicate our lives. Let me give you an example. I would love to own a motorcycle. I would love to own a motorcycle. I can't afford the divorce that would have to go with it. (laughs) But I would love to own a motorcycle. But if I did buy a motorcycle, think about how it would complicate my life. I would have to buy protective clothing. I would have to wash and maintain the motorcycle. I would have to find time to ride it, and I wouldn't want to just ride it back and forth to work. I'd want to really ride it. I would have to clear a place to store it. I would have to earn more money to make the payment and to pay the insurance. I would have to deal with that divorce that would have to go with it. The item that I would buy for fun would really make my life a lot more complicated. My life is simpler without a motorcycle. Some of you had simpler lives before you got that dog or before you purchased that timeshare or before you bought that bigger house that needs more maintenance. So the thought that more money and more stuff brings us happiness may be flawed. So let's just ask ourselves a question. What if Jesus was right? What if Jesus was right? I mean, what if we simply believed him? What if he actually knew what he was talking about? Jesus talked a lot about money and things. He had a lot to say about money and things, much more than most preachers do who are accused of talking about it all the time. And much of what Jesus said wasn't a command as much as it was an observation about how the world actually works. Jesus said... You will have greater blessings when you give than when you receive. That's not a command. That's just an observation that is true, and we know it's true. Most of us have experienced it. We just forget it sometimes, and we don't always choose to live it out in our life. And Jesus said, you cannot serve both God and worldly riches. Notice he didn't say, don't serve both God and worldly riches. He didn't say you shouldn't serve both God and worldly riches. He said you can't. You can't do it. It's impossible to do it. He pointed out the truth that it's impossible for us to do it. And then in Luke 12, Jesus said this, Life is not measured by how much one owns. Again, he didn't command us to buy less. He just made a statement about the way that life actually works. The most important things in life aren't in your closet or in your garage or in your retirement fund. That's not what real life is measured by. Real life is not measured by how much one owns. And some of us need to simplify our lives. We just need to get rid of some things that we own that are complicating our lives and cluttering our lives. And when we do, we're going to discover that Jesus was right. That Jesus was right all along. That happiness is found in less, not more. Less, not more. Let's look at one more practice for unhurrying your life. It is simply slowing down. Simply slowing down. 
it had been a busy time in ministry. Uh, Jesus' followers had been on a missions trip that he had sent them on and given them power for, and God had done great things through them. And when they came back, there were still crowds and crowds of people needing them, and there was some conflict going on, and it was super busy, and they were super tired. And look at what Mark 6 tells us. Then, because so many people were coming and going, that they did not even have a chance to eat, he said to them, come with me by yourselves to a quiet place and get some rest. So they went away by themselves in a boat to a solitary place. Jesus had them do something that we rarely do. He had them stop their busy schedule right in the midst of the busyness and just slow down. He wanted to take them away for a few days on a vacation of sorts. He wanted them to get some rest. And sometimes the most spiritual thing you and I can do is just slow down. And you can do that on vacations sometimes, unless you take vacations like I do sometimes. You know, I'm an itinerary guy. We only have a few days in this place. We're going to pack it full and see everything that we can see. And we can rest when we get home, you know. But you can rest on restful vacations. But you can also do this on a consistent basis in your daily life. You just have to decide to slow down. To not rush from place to place. John Ortberg has begun to label this emerging practice as the spiritual discipline of slowing. He defines it as cultivating patience by deliberately choosing to place ourselves in positions where we simply have to wait. We deliberately put ourselves in positions where we have to wait. That's a biblical idea. Look at what it says in Psalm 37. Trust in the Lord and wait quietly for his help. Wait quietly for his help. Sometimes we are moving so fast that we end up trying to solve the problems ourselves rather than just waiting quietly for God to help. Slowing also means we end up treating people better and finishing projects that we start. Now, I'm guessing I'm not the only one in the room that has many unfinished projects and I'm not the only one in the room that gets impatient with people because I'm running so fast. Look at what this verse says. It is better to finish something than to start it. It is better to be gentle and patient than to be proud and impatient. Slowing down helps me to do those things. So how can you practice slowing down today? Not next week, not in the future, today. Well, here's a few ideas. Drive the speed limit. I know, I don't do that very often either. Stay in the slow lane even if the car in front of you is irritatingly slow. Park in the furthest space from the door rather than the closest space. Turn off your phone during meals or family times and for sure during quiet times. Choose the longest line instead of the shortest one. Walk slowly through the room. 
noticing the people that are around you. Phone a friend, not text, phone a friend. All of these ideas will help you to just slow down. We're about out of time, so let me close this up. Here's the thing. We've just talked about four practices for unhurrying your life, and part of you wants that. Part of you craves that. But part of you might not be sure it's a good idea at all. I mean, you see, somewhere along the line, busyness has become a status symbol for us. It used to be when someone asked how you were, you said, fine, or I'm well. Now, most of the time, the most common answer is busy. I'm really busy. And some experts have determined when we say it, it's what they call a humble brag. A humble brag. We have come to believe that busy people are important, that busy people are successful. In many studies, busyness is associated with higher social status than those who have time to do leisurely things. And many today actually prefer to be busy and stressed and hurried and overwhelmed. And if that rings true for you, it will be hard for you to experience God's peace. If that rings true for you, it will be hard for you to experience God's rest, to really connect with him. And I want to help you get off the normal path that leads away from God. I want to get off that path, and um, I want to stop heading towards spiritual destruction. And if I want that, then I have to deal with my addiction to being busy. And so do you. So we're going to end this message a little differently today. I I want to give you just a little time to experience this, just a little time to reflect on what we've said and what it means to you. You might just sit quietly and ask God to show you which of the four areas that we've talked about that you should try first, silence and solitude or Sabbath rest or simplicity or slowing down. I'm going to ask that during this time, no one move. No one move from your seats at all. Let's try to have at least the least distractions that we can have. Let's not talk or whisper. Let's just experience some quiet reflection and see what God does in our lives and in our hearts. There'll be some scriptures on the screen behind me that you can focus on if you want to, or you can just choose to close your eyes and separate yourself from everything else and use this time to let God speak to you. So let me pray and then just allow yourself to be quiet and see what God will do. Jesus, in this time, we invite you to speak to us, to place upon our hearts what you really want from us. In Jesus' name, amen.
Heavenly Father, in this quiet room, we want to hear from you. We want to respond to you. Father, slow our lives so that we can pay attention to you. Father, help us to push aside busyness so that we can become who you designed us to be. In Jesus' name, amen. We're getting ready to partake of the Lord's Supper. It's a time for us to remember and reflect on all that God has done for us, how he loved us so much that he sent Jesus to pay the price for our sin by dying on the cross. So we're going to kind of keep this sense of reflection, this quietness of our spirit as we get ready to remember Jesus. And I want to give you a scripture to focus on and to think about. In the book of Acts, they began to proclaim that Jesus was the rescuer of God. And it made some religious people very uncomfortable during that time. They suddenly had to deal with the fact that they personally weren't as close to God as what they had thought they were. And that happens sometimes at communion time. We focus on Jesus and we realize we haven't done as well this week as we should have. Or maybe we realize that we need to embrace him fully again. And these words from Acts 3 spoke to them and can speak to us. So you must change your hearts and lives. Come back to God and he will forgive your sins. Then the Lord will send the time of rest. Jesus has been working on our hearts this morning. He, he wants to change our hearts and our attitudes and eventually our actions. Each week, he urges us at this time just to come back to him, to accept his love again, to accept his forgiveness again, to experience him, to experience his forgiveness. And he offers us rest Use this time to reconnect, to experience his rest. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, thank you so much for Jesus, for his sacrifice, for his love for us. Now, Father, as we partake, we remember you, we celebrate your love, and we ask you to give us rest. In Jesus' name, amen.